Sometime around the turn of the 15th century, a Cistercian monk of Byland Abbey took it upon himself to pen a series of ghost stories on the empty pages of a folio containing some of the library's more prestigious works. The medieval monk scribbling down ghost stories was, in truth, not entirely unusual. In the case of the Byland monk, however, the stories seemed to be less concerned with religious matters and more with grisly details of the spirits themselves. Undead rising from the graves, shape-shifting from human to animal and back again, hunting down the living to gouge their eyes from their skulls. The monk was, in his way, reporting on the folklore of the day, leaving behind one of the Middle Ages' more unique documents on belief in the afterlife. Republished in its original Latin by medievalist and author M.R. James in 1922, the stories had, perhaps, more in common with his own writings than they did that of any of the church, and opened a window on the prevalence of pagan beliefs and folklore tradition that maintained throughout medieval Europe. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 6, Episode 6. I'm your host, Ben, as always, and it's a pleasure to be back at the microphone. This week we've got a slightly different sort of story, or series of stories. I, my trusty laptop that I take with me everywhere to, you know, to make all the episodes and stuff um, has decided that it's going to give up on life. Um, so until I get round to sort of jimmying it with a screwdriver later this week, um, yeah, I was a little bit stuck on on, on how to work. Uh, so I had to, it wasn't actually that bad, just meant I had to work in, in a slightly different way. Uh, and luckily I had this episode kind of lined up anyway. So yeah, this episode is slightly different to normal. Although not so much different, it's just a series of stories as opposed to a single story. So yeah, let's just get straight into it. This is The Medieval Ghost Stories of Byland Abbey. Deep in the North York Moors, in the county of Yorkshire, in the far reaches of the northeast of England, the ruins of Byland Abbey strike out of the green fields. Shards of time-worn, cream-stone walls leave a partial shell that hints at the grandiose early Gothic church, the size of most cathedrals, that once dominated the rural landscape as one of the largest and best-known monasteries in northern England. Despite its eventual prominence in the region, the monastery's founding was far from a straightforward affair. The founding monks were members of the Savignac Order, hailing from northern France, who had originally settled in Furness Monastery in Cumbria, in the northwest of England, close to the England-Scottish border. The monastery was the first Savignac monastery built outside of France and was in itself a relatively grand structure, built for them by Stephen of Boulogne, the future king of England, in 1123. Under its quick growth, the monastery sought to expand with its own daughter house, a task that was undertaken by the newly appointed abbot, Gerald, and twelve lay brothers. Already considerable landowners, the monks built a second abbey further along the Cumbria coast, however it proved to be a step too far north and came under repeated attacks from the Scots, who eventually sacked the house in 1138, and when Gerald returned to Furness, he found himself facing an ultimatum. He and his brothers would be allowed re-entry only upon his renouncing of his status of abbot. Not keen to toss aside his relatively young title, 
Gerald took off with his brothers, touring through the countryside of Yorkshire. In 1142, he travelled to Normandy to put forward his case for the right of freedom for his order from the rule of the Furness Monastery. The general chapter of abbots at Savigny took favour upon Gerald and he won the monks their freedom. However, it was a victory shortly enjoyed, for he fell ill upon his return journey to England, dying in York before he had reached his order. Succeeded by Roger, who moved the order to an estate in Old Byland, where they neighboured the Revo Abbey and its complement of Cistercian monks. The Cistercians were none too happy with this new group setting up shop on their doorstep, however, and they quickly saw them off. The monks once again picked up sticks and moved further west to a patch of wasteland in Stocking that had been granted to them by Roger de Mowbray, a supporter of King Stephen and a significant landowner who spent much of his life doling out portions of the country to various religious orders, including the Knights Templar. Once in Stocking, the order settled for a period of about 30 years, building a small church amongst a modest estate, and in 1147 they merged with another French religious order from the Cistercian Monastery of Clairvaux. Under the new banner of Cistercian Order, the group thrived, taking in and absorbing several smaller orders from the area until they were large enough to spawn a daughter house for themselves. Their growth had not gone unnoticed, however, and once more, the Abbot of Furness attempted to get his fingers involved in Abbot Rogers' pie. Rogers, like Gerald before, Rogers, like Gerald before him, took the issue to France, where they were promised the protection of Savigny, ensuring their independent survival. By the late 1150s, the monks had acquired a patch of marshland and had begun construction on what they hoped would become their permanent home. Taking almost 20 years to complete, the group moved into the premises in 1177, though construction of the church would take a further 15 years to complete. Abbot Roger oversaw the entire process, which eventually led to the completion of Byland Abbey, a grand structure in the centre of the monks' estate that by now included several sheep farms, iron mines and fisheries. Abbot Roger stepped down in 1196 and his successor, Philip, took control and remained as abbot for much of the abbey's most prosperous years. It was not to be an easy ride for the monastery, however, and their location so far north caused them continuous problems with the Scottish armies, a routine which came to a head in the 14th century after the English army, led by Edward II, made an unsuccessful advance into Scotland, followed by a hasty retreat with Robert the Bruce hot on their heels. Partial to a bit of scorched earth strategy, Robert the Bruce's army sacked several monasteries in the region, including Byland. By the mid-14th century, the Black Death further ravaged the region, and by the end of the century, the monasteries, which had been home to around 80 monks at its height, now housed only 11. Those that were left repurposed much of the lands that they owned, renting them out in order to keep themselves afloat. The monastery slowly rebuilt, but only in time to surrender the building to the crown, after Henry VIII became supreme head of the Church of England and promptly dissolved many of the monasteries throughout the country in order to absorb their considerable land ownership and material wealth. The monks were offered a pension in return and the abbey was gutted of all of its property, lead, glass and timber. Among the many items that belonged to the abbey that made their way south, primarily to London, were many of the works that made up the monastery's significant library. One of the works, a considerable collection of folios filled with theological writings and inscribed Liber de Sancta Maria de Bella Landa, 
passed through several hands before it wound up in the British Museum, where it came to the attention of antiquarian, medievalist scholar and legendary author of early 20th century ghost stories, M.R. James. James stumbled across the script, catalogued as British Museum Manuscript Royal 15AXX, in 1922 and was immediately intrigued by the notes in the catalogue made by an earlier scholar who had labelled them Exemplaria Apparitionum Spiritum, or Examples of the Apparitions of Spirits. James appeared to have stumbled upon a medieval book of ghost stories. Written towards the end of the 14th century by an anonymous monk, the Byland Abbey ghost stories were penned on the blank end pages of a folio originally written 200 years prior. The tales are not necessarily unique in their subject matter. Many ghost stories were committed to paper during the medieval period by religious scholars. The dialogue of miracles of Caesarius of Heisterbach, written by a Cistercian monk who penned a series of essays in order to impress the dangers of sin, overlaps with the Byland stories on several points. Other tales, like The Visions of Torgith, written by the Venerable Bede and included in his infamous work Ecclesiastical History of the British People, lent more towards a folk history motive rather than a religious one. Where the Byland stories differ is in their religious subtext. Whilst many similar writings were meant as religious lessons, the Byland stories were more a series of local folk tales dotted with the monks' religious influences. In this way, they display a good deal of information about the traditional aspects of the medieval mindset when it came to the world of spirits, the afterlife, and unholy apparitions, as well as incorporating elements of legendary folk tales from as far away as Scandinavia and Northern Europe. Like all good modern ghost stories, they do contain an element of moral caution. However, rather than preach, the monk who penned the twelve stories seems to have been far more interested in relating the spooky, gory and more sensational elements of his stories, foregoing much of the usual religious metaphors to instead include images of shape-shifting spectres bent on causing harm and striking fear into the local layman. The medieval understanding of the afterlife morphed over time, however, by the late 12th century it was fairly well established within monastic life, centering on living a life of spiritual purity and salvation, that it consisted of three distinct planes, heaven for the saved, hell for the damned, and purgatory for all of those that fell in between. A disturbed beacon of light, purgatory existed as a holding ground for all of those that had committed sins in their life, the time spent trapped between the two worlds being dependent on the seriousness of the sin. This time could be shortened, or even completely written off, if suffrages from the living were secured in the form of masses and prayer said in one's favour. It is, perhaps, no surprise then, that it is from this quarter that most of the Byland Abbey's ghosts appear, springing from purgatory on an unsuspecting member of Yorkshire society. The spirits are frequently seeking help with their escape from purgatory, and as we shall see, go to some pretty strange lengths to secure it, from doing good deeds or promising miraculous rewards to straight up threats and violence. In this first story, we see exactly this. A man is walking home, carrying some beans and minding his own business before he is approached by a spirit seeking help. Concerning the ghost of a certain labourer at Riveau who helped a man to carry beans. 
A certain man was riding on his horse, carrying on its back a pack of beans. The horse stumbled on the road and broke its shinbone. When the man saw this, he took the beans to carry them on his own back, and while he was walking on the road, he saw there was a horse standing in front of him on its hind feet and holding up its forefeet. In alarm, he forbade the horse in the name of Jesus Christ to do him any harm. Upon this, the creature went along in the shape of a horse, and in a little while appeared to him in the likeness of a revolving haycock with a light in the middle, to which the man said, God forbid that you bring evil upon me. At these words, the creature appeared in the shape of a man, and the traveller conjured him. Then the spirit told him his name, and the reason of his walking, and the remedy, and he added, Permit me to carry your beans, and to help you. And thus he did as far as the stream, but he was not willing to pass over the water, and the living man knew not how the bag of beans was placed again on his own back. And afterwards he caused the ghost to be absolved, and masses to be sung for him, and the ghost was eased. The story's setup set something of a theme for the Byland Abbey ghosts. A spirit trapped in purgatory contacts a member of the living in an effort to resolve the issue. One of the more interesting elements of this first story was the shape-shifting nature of the ghost, who appeared not only as a horse-like figure, but also in the form of a heaped pile of hay, proving that the medievalists were not shy of a little psychedelia. Eventually, the spirit reaches an uncrossable river, which very probably was used as a metaphor, representing purity and acting as a boundary between the living and the dead. At the end of the story, the man paid for masses to be sung in the spirit's name, a process which would have involved a series of Gregorian chants and would likely have been a relatively expensive affair for the old bean carrier. In many of the stories, including the second, the spirit is a form similar to that of a revenant, or a physical undead, rather than an apparition. Revenants existed in folklore from across Europe and as far north as Iceland. It was a malign spirit with the ability to touch and therefore harm the living, both physically and spiritually. Such beings stemmed from earlier pagan beliefs that the church had sought to stamp out, though their success appears patchy at best, as they appeared frequently in medieval religious writings concerning the afterlife. In the second story, a local tailor, whose first name is never given, meets a violent, shape-shifting, revenant-like spirit whilst riding a horse, which leads him into a long-winded quest to free the spirit from purgatory. Concerning a wonderful encounter between a ghost and a living man in the time of King Richard. It is said that a certain tailor of the name of Snowball was returning on horseback one night from Gilling in his home in Ampleforth and on the way, he heard, as it were, the sound of ducks washing themselves in the stream, and soon after he saw, as it were, a raven that flew around his face and came down to the earth and struck the ground with its wings as though it were on the point of death. And the tailor got off of his horse to take the raven, and as he did so, he saw sparks of fire shooting from the sides of the raven. Whereupon he crossed himself and forbade him in the name of God to bring at that time any harm upon him. Then it flew off with a great screaming for about the space of a stone's throw. Then again the man mounted his horse and very soon the same raven met him as it flew and struck him on the side and threw the tailor to the ground from the horse upon which he was riding. And he lay stretched upon the ground as it were in a swoon and lifeless and he was very frightened. Then 
rising and strong in the faith, he fought with him with his sword until he was weary, and it seemed to him that he was striking a peat sack. And he forbade him and conjured him in the name of God, saying, God forbid that you have power to hurt me on this occasion, rather be gone. And again the raven flew off with a horrible screaming, as if it were the space of the flight of an arrow. And the third time it appeared to the tailor, as he was carrying the cross of his sword upon his breast for fear, and it met him in the likeness of a dog with a chain on its neck. And when he saw it, the tailor, strong in the faith, thought within himself, What will become of me? I will adjure him in the name of the Trinity, and by the virtue of the blood of Christ from his five wounds, that the ghost speaks with me, and do me no wrong, but stand fast, and answers my questions, and tells me his name, and the cause of his punishment, and the remedy that belongs to it. And the spirit did so, and the spirit, panting terribly and groaning, said, Thus and thus I did, and for thus doing I have been excommunicated. Therefore go to a certain priest and ask him to absolve me, and it behooves me to have the full number of nine times twenty masses celebrated for me. And now, of two things, you must choose one. Hither you shall come back to me on a certain night, alone, bringing to me the answer of those whose names I have given you, and I will tell you how you may be made whole. And in the meantime, you need not fear the sight of a wood, or otherwise your flesh shall rot and your skin shall dry up and shall fall off from you utterly in a short time. No moreover, that I have met you now, because today you have not heard Mass, nor the Gospel of John, and have not seen the consecration of our Lord's body and blood, for otherwise I should not have had full power of appearing to you. And as the Spirit spoke with a tailor, he was, as it were, on fire, and his inner parts could be seen through his mouth, and he formed his words in his entrails, and did not speak with his tongue. Then the tailor asked permission from the ghost that he might have with him on his return some companion. But the ghost said, No, but have upon you the four Gospels and the name of victory, namely Jesus of Nazareth, on account of two other ghosts that abide here, of whom one cannot speak, whom he is conjured and abides in the likeness of fire or of a bush, and the other is in the form of a hunter, and they are very dangerous to me. Pledge me further on this stone, that you will defame my bones to no one except to the priests who celebrate on my behalf, and the others to whom you are sent on my behalf, who may be of use to me. And he gave his word upon the stone that he would not reveal the secret, as has been already explained. Then he conjured the ghost to go to Hodgebeck and to await his return. And the ghost said, No, no, and screamed. And the tailor said, Go then to Byland Bank, whereat he was glad. The man of whom we speak was ill for some days, but then got well and went to York to the priest who had been mentioned, who had excommunicated the dead man, and asked him for absolution. But he refused to absolve him, and called to him another chaplain to take counsel with him. And that chaplain called in another, and that other, a third, to advise secretly concerning the absolution of this man. And the tailor asked of him, Sir, you know the mutual token that I hinted in your ear? And he answered, Yes, my son. Then after many negotiations, the tailor made satisfaction and paid five shillings and received the absolution written on a piece of parchment, and he was sworn not to defame the dead man, but to bury the absolution in his grave near his head and secretly. And when he had got it, he went to a certain brother Richard of Pickering, a confessor of repute, 
and asked him whether the absolution was sufficient and lawful, and he answered that it was. Then the tailor went to all the orders of the friars of York, and he had almost all the required masses celebrated during two or three days, and coming home he buried the absolution in the grave as he had been ordered. And when all of these things had been duly carried out, he came home, and a certain officious neighbour of his, healing that he had to report of a ghost on a certain night, all that he had done at York, adjured him, saying, God forbid that you go to this ghost without telling me of you going, and of the day and the hour. And being so constrained, for fear of displeasing God, he told him, waking him up from sleep and saying, I am going now, if you wish to come with me, let us set off, and I will give you a part of the writings that I carry on me, because of night fears. Then the other said, Do you want me to go with you? And the tailor said, You must see to that, I will give no advice to you. Then, at last, the other said, Get you gone in the name of the Lord, and may God prosper you in all things. After these words, he came to the appointed place, and made a great circle with a cross, and he had upon him the four Gospels, and other holy words, and he stood in the middle of the circle, and he placed four reliquaries in the form of a cross on the edge of the circle, and on the reliquaries were written words of salvation, namely Jesus of Nazareth, etc., and he waited for the coming of the ghosts. He came at length in the form of a she-goat, and went thrice around the circle, saying, Ah, 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 and when he conjured the she-goat, she fell prone upon the ground, and rose up again in the likeness of a man of great stature, horrible and thin, and like one of the dead kings in pictures. And when he was asked whether the tailor's labour had been of service to him, he answered, Yes, praise be God, and I stood at your back when you buried my absolution in my grave at the ninth hour, and were afraid. No wonder you were afraid, for three devils were present there, who had tormented me in every way from the time when you first conjured me to the time of my absolution suspecting that they would have me but very little time in their custody to torment me. Know, therefore, that on Monday next I shall pass into everlasting joy with thirty other spirits. Go now to a certain beck, and you will find a broad stone. Lift it up, and under it you will find a sandstone. Wash your whole body with water, rub it with the stone, and you will be whole in a few days. When he was asked the names of the two ghosts, he answered, I cannot tell you their names. And when asked about their condition, he answered that one was a layman and a soldier and was not of these parts, and he killed a woman great with child, and he will find no remedy before the day of judgment, and you will see him in the form of a bullock, without mouth or eyes or ears, and however you conjure him, he will not be able to speak. And the other was a man of religion in the shape of a hunter blowing upon a horn, and he will find a remedy, and he will be conjured by a certain boy who has not yet come to manhood, if the Lord will. And then the tailor asked the ghost of his own condition, and received answer. You are keeping wrongfully the cap and coat of one who was your friend and companion in the wars beyond the seas. Give satisfaction to him, or you will pay dearly for it. And the tailor said, I know not where he lives. And the ghost answered, He lives in such a town near to the castle of Alnwick. When further he asked, What is my greatest fault? The ghost answered, Your greatest fault is because of me. And the man said, How and in what way? And the ghost answered, Because the people's sin, telling lies concerning you and bringing scandal on the other dead men, saying the dead man who was conjured was he or he or he. And he asked the ghost, What shall I do? I will reveal your name. 
And he said, no, but if you stay in one place, you will be rich, and in another place, you will be poor, and you have here certain enemies. Then the spirit said, I can stay no longer talking with you. And as they went their different ways, the deaf and dumb and blind bullock went with the man as far as the town of Ampleforth, whom he conjured in all the ways that he knew, but by no means could he make answer. And the ghost that had been aided by him advised him to keep all his best writings by his head until he went to sleep, and say neither more nor less than I advise you, and keep your eyes on the ground, and look not on a wood fire for this night at least. And when he came home, he was seriously ill for several days. This second story, concerning the fate of Snowball the tailor, sees him meeting a spirit seeking absolution for sins he's committed during his life, which, considering his excommunication, were apparently fairly great. This fact may also go some way into explaining why in this story the ghost's deal is a little less voluntary, threatening Snowball with rotting skin if he doesn't seek absolution for the spirit. The cost for Snowball financially is also seemingly fairly hefty, clocking in at around two solid weeks' wages for a master crafter. Interestingly, the spirit in this story was likely that of an important figure, and whilst we don't ever get its name, it's also likely that the monk left it out not due to lack of information, but rather to protect the person's reputation. The rest of the stories in the Byland Abbey collection are all relatively short, some only consisting of a single paragraph or a few sentences, but in their brevity are no less interesting or unusual. Concerning the ghost of Robert the son of Robert de Bolte of Kilburn, which was caught in a churchyard, I must tell you that this Robert the Younger died and was buried in a churchyard, but he had the habit of leaving his grave by night and disturbing and frightening the villages, and the dogs of the village used to follow him and bark loudly. Then some young men of the village talked together and determined to catch him if they possibly could, and they came together to the cemetery. By when they saw the ghosts, they all fled with the exception of two. Of these, one, called Robert Foxton, seized him at the entrance to the cemetery and placed him on the kirkstile, whilst the other cried manfully, Keep him fast until I come to you. The first one answered, Go quickly to the parish priest, that the ghost may be conjured, for with God's help I will hold firmly what I have got until the arrival of the priest. The parish priest made all haste to come and conjured him in the name of the Holy Trinity and in the virtue of Jesus Christ that he should give him an answer to his questions. And when he had been conjured, he spoke in the inside of his bowels, and not with his tongue, but as if it were in an empty cask, and he confessed his different offences. And when these were made known, the priests absolved him, but charged those who had seized him not to reveal his confession in any way, and henceforth, as God willed, he rested in peace. It is said, moreover, that before his absolution he would stand at the doors of houses and at windows and walls as if it were listening. Perhaps he was waiting to see if anyone would come out and conjure him and give help to him in his necessity. Some people say that he had been assisting and consenting to the murder of a certain man and that he had done other evil things of which I must not speak in detail at present. James Tankerley Moreover, the old men tell us that a certain man called James Tankerley, formerly rector of Kirby, was buried in front of the chapter house at Byland and used to walk at night as far as Kirby, and one night he blew out the eye of his concubine there, 
and it is said that the abbot and convent caused his body to be dug up from the tomb along with the coffin and they compelled Roger Wainman to carry it as far as Gormir and while he was throwing the coffin into the water the oxen were almost drowned for fear. God forbid that I be in any danger for even as I have heard from my elders so have I written may the Almighty have mercy upon him if indeed he were of the number of those destined to salvation. This story of James Tankley is unusual, not only in the Byland stories, but in medieval ghost stories in general, due to the spirit's aggressive nature in rising from the dead to purposefully hunt down and gouge out the eyes or blind his ex-mistress. It's also unusual in that there was no absolution involved. Instead, the solution for the living was simply to exhume the spirit's physical body and toss him into a river four miles from his original burial site. Distance, however, does not seem to be the solution, as Kirby is itself over 20 miles from Byland, and the ghost had no problem walking there. Therefore, it seems the river itself must have had some special property to drown the spirit. The fifth story is the shortest of all the Byland stories, though it manages to squeeze in a considerable amount of gore into its short narrative. Rotten Flesh What I write is a great marvel. It is said that a certain woman laid hold of a ghost and carried him on her back into a certain house in presence of some men, one of whom reported that he saw the hands of the woman sink deeply into the flesh of the ghost as though the flesh were rotten and not solid but phantom flesh. Concerning a certain canon of Newburgh who was seized after his death, It happened that this man was talking with the master of the ploughman and was walking with him in the field, and suddenly the master fled in a great terror and the other man was left struggling with a ghost who foully tore his garments, and at last he gained the victory and conjured him, and he being conjured confessed that he had been a certain canon of Newburgh, and that he had been excommunicated for certain silver spoons which he had hidden in a certain place. He therefore begged the living man that he would go to the place he mentioned and take them away and carry them to the prior and ask for absolution. And he did so, and he found the silver spoons in the place mentioned. And after absolution, the ghost henceforth rested in peace. But the man was ill and languished for many days, and he affirmed that the ghost appeared to him in the habit of a cannon. Caring for animals more than humans Concerning a certain ghost in another place who, being conjured, confessed that he was severely punished because being the hired servant of a certain householder, he stole his master's corn and gave it to his oxen that they might look fat. And there was another thing which troubled him even more, namely that he ploughed the land not deeply but on the surface, wishing his oxen to keep fat. And he said that there were 15 spirits in one place, severely punished for sins like his own, which they had committed. He begged his conjurer, therefore, to ask his master for pardon and absolution so that he might obtain the suitable remedy. William of Bradaforth Concerning another ghost that followed William of Bradaforth and cried, How, 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 thrice on three occasions. It appeared that on the fourth night, about midnight, he went back to the new place from the village of Ampleforth and as he was returning by the road, he heard a terrible voice shouting far behind him and as it were on the hillside, and a little after it cried again in like manner but nearer, and the third time it screamed at the crossroads ahead of him, 
and at last he saw a pale horse, and his dog barked a little, but then hid itself in great fear between the legs of said William. Whereupon he commanded the spirit in the name of the Lord, and in virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ, to depart, and not to block his path. And when he heard this, he withdrew like a revolving piece of canvas with four corners and kept on turning, so that it seems that he was a ghost that mightily desired to be conjured and to receive effective help. Concerning the ghost of a man of Aiton in Cleveland, it is reported that this ghost followed a man for four times twenty miles, that he should conjure and help him. And when he had been conjured, he confessed that he had been excommunicated for a certain matter of sixpence. But after absolution and satisfaction, he rested in peace. In all these things, as nothing evil was left unpunished, nor contrarywise anything good unrewarded, God showed himself to be a just rewarder. It is said, too, that the ghost before he was conjured threw the living man over a hedge and caught him on the other side as he fell. When he was conjured, he replied, If you had done so first, I would not have hurt you but here and there you were frightened, and I did it. The final three stories return to a fuller narrative. Interestingly, the next story does not contain a ghost at all, but instead is the story of a local necromancer. It's also unique in the Byland stories for taking place in Exeter in the southwest of England, far away from Byland. How a Penitent Thief after confession, vanished from the eyes of the demon. It happened formerly in Exeter that a ditcher, a hard worker and a great eater lived in the cellar of a great house, which had many cellars which connected walls but only one living room. The ditcher, when he was hungry, used often to climb up into the living room and cut off slices from the meat that was there hung up and cook them and eat them, even if it were lent. And the lord of the house seeing that his meat was cut, examined his servants concerning the matter, and as they all denied and cleared themselves by oath, he threatened that he would go to a certain sorcerous necromancer and make inquiry through him into this wonderful event. When the ditcher heard this, he was much afraid, and went to the friars and confessed his crime, and received the sacrament of absolution. But the lord of the house went, as he had threatened to the necromancer, who anointed the nail of a small boy, and by incantation asked him what he saw, and the boy answered, I see a serving man with clipped hair. The necromancer said, Conjure him, therefore, to appear to you in the fairest form that he can. And so he did, and the boy said, Behold, I see a very beautiful horse. And then he saw a man in a form like that of the ditcher, climbing up the ladder and carving the meat with the horse following him. And the clerk said, What are the man and the horse doing now? And the child said, Look, he is cooking and eating the meat. And when he was asked again, What is he doing now? The little boy answered, They are going both of them to the church of the friars, but the horse is waiting outside, and the man is going in, and he kneels and speaks with the friar, who places his hand on his head. Then the clerk asked of the boy, What are they doing now? And he answered, They have both vanished from my eyes, and I can see them no longer, and I have no idea where they are. Concerning a wonderful work of God, who calls things which are not as though they were, things which are, and who can act when and how he wills, and concerning a certain miracle. It has been handed down to memory that a certain man of Cleveland, called Richard Roundtree, 
left his wife great with child and went with many others to the tomb of St. James. And one night they passed the night in a wood near to the king's highway. Wherefore, one of the party kept watch for a part of the night against night fears, and the others slept in safety. And it happened that in that part of the night, in which the man we speak of was guardian and night watchman, he heard a great sound of people passing along the king's highway. And some rode sitting on horses, and sheep, and oxen, and some on other animals. And all the animals were those that had been given to the church when they died. And at last he saw what seemed a small child wriggling along on the ground wrapped in a stocking. And he conjured him and asked him who he was and why he thus wriggled along. And the child answered, You ought not to conjure me, for you were my father and I was your abortive son, buried without baptism and without name. And when he heard this, the pilgrim took off his shirt and put it on his small child, and gave him a name in the name of the Holy Trinity. And he took with him the old stocking in witness of the matter. And the child, when he had thus received the name, jumped with joy and henceforth walked erect upon his feet, though previously he had wriggled. And when the pilgrimage was over, the man gave a banquet to his neighbours, and asked his wife for his hose. She showed him one stocking, but could not find the other. Then the husband showed her the stocking in which the child was wrapped, and she was astonished. And as the midwives confessed the truth concerning the death and burial of the boy in the stocking, a divorce took place between the husband and the wife, inasmuch as he was the godfather of the abortive child. But I believe that this divorce was highly displeasing to God. Concerning the sister of old Adam of Lon, and how she was seized after her death, according to the account given by old men. It must be understood that this woman was buried in the churchyard of Ampleforth, and shortly after her death she was seized by William Trower the Elder, and being conjured, she confessed that she wandered in his road at night on account of certain charters which she had given wrongfully to Adam her brother. This was because a quarrel had arisen between her husband and herself, and therefore she had given the papers to her brother to the injury of her husband and her own children, so that after her death her brother expelled her husband from his house namely from a toft and croft in Ampleforth with their appurtenances and from an ox-gang of land in Hesleton and its appurtenances and all this by violence. She begged therefore this William to suggest to her brother that he should restore these charters to her husband and her children and give back to them their land for that otherwise she could by no means rest in peace until the day of judgment. So William, according to her commands, made this suggestion to Adam but he refused to restore the charters saying, I don't believe what you say. And he answered, My words were true in everything. Wherefore, if God wills, you shall hear your sister talking to you of this matter ere long. And on another night, he seized her again and carried her to the chamber of Adam, and she spoke with him. And her hardened brother said of some report, If you walk forever, I won't give back the charters. Then she groaned and answered, May God judge between you and me. Know then that until your death, I shall have no rest. Wherefore, after your death, you will walk in my place. It is said, moreover, that her right hand hung down, and that it was very black, and she was asked why this was, and she answered that it was because often in her disputes she had held it out and sworn falsely. At length she was conjured to go to another place on account of the night fear and terror which she caused to the folk of that village. I ask pardon if by chance I have offended in writing what is not true. It is said, however, that Adam de Londe, the younger, made partial satisfaction to the true heir 
after the death of the elder Adam. The stories written by the anonymous Byland Abbey monk are fascinating for several reasons. One of the biggest questions posed, however, is why they were recorded in the first place. They are presented as unquestionable facts, and whilst it was common in medieval monastic societies to record similar stories for use as exemplar, a kind of moral or spiritual lesson to enlighten new monks or the local society through their repetition in sermons, the Byland stories do not appear to be written for such a purpose. Whilst it's true that they contain plenty of religious messages that reflect the official stance of the afterlife at the time, they are far more centred on folklore, with the religious elements inserted as a matter of colour from the monks' worldview. French medievalist Jean-Claude Schmidt proposes that the Bailan monk recorded the stories simply as entertainment, and suggests that he was far more interested in the fantastic nature of the stories rather than the lessons that they could impart to the local citizenry. Interestingly, the monk uses many creatures and monsters from pagan folklore that the church had tried to stamp out in order to explain the existence of purgatory. It seems that the church, having failed to eradicate the old beliefs, instead chose to absorb them into their own doctrine. It could even be argued that the Byland stories were a form of exemplar written to reach a wider audience by teaching using the vehicle of entertainment to tell popularly understood stories. When viewed in this light, the fact that the stories were first published to a wider audience by M.R. James, a medievalist scholar who gained infamy through his own ghost stories, somehow seems a great deal more fitting. So that was the 12 ghost stories of Byland Abbey. And I guess, being quite dense as they were, uh, they, they, there's a little bit to talk about. So yeah, we'll do so after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So they were the stories of the Byland Abbey monk. Um, really interesting, I thought. Quite dense, quite difficult to unpack. Um, there's a lot of obviously weird language. I mean, they were originally written in um, Latin and then translated. But the translation's obviously quite rigid. Um, so quite difficult to grasp and unpack. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you have to read them like two or three times to really kind of get what's going on. But, but really cool. Um, some of the... Imagery is is really quite um, quite out there and and definitely like quite terrifying and spooky and you can see where some scholars have said that you know the Byland Abbey monk was far more interested in, in entertainment and just and and really into the kind of gory details of the stories rather than imparting any lessons. The raven that turns into a dog with a chain around its neck is a good one. And the other one where he talks about the, the she-goat walking around like this great big demonic circle, like summoning circle that he's painted on the floor. And yeah, the, the she-goat walks around it and, and, and sort of melts into the floor and then comes back up as a human. Like that's pretty psychedelic and out there and, and, and definitely, you know, horror movie imagery. I, I really enjoyed them. Um the, the the fact that the ghosts seem to talk from their bowels, he says, and you know they you could see into their like mouths down into their stomach where it was like fire, and they spoke from their bowels rather than moving their mouths and their tongues and stuff. Um, I wonder personally if he was enjoying the scary part of it and the supernatural side of things and hamming that up a bit, but was he hamming that up to sort of frighten people? 
into doing certain things because there, there's the one story I think it's the third or fourth story where he's talking about the, the ghost came and, the, and and he's given all this gory imagery of this ghost and then he says oh the ghost came because that guy didn't go to church that day basically and so like he's kind of vulnerable to seeing this ghost and so you think well yeah you're basically trying to scare people into going to church then you know that's basically what he's saying he's saying you know, if you don't go to church this could happen to you after he's just kind of given this really gory, terrifying description of this spirit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I sort of believe that he was more trying to make the stories almost be like entertainment, be full of these kind of folklore story, tales in order for them to be repeated and passed along easier, therefore passing the message along at the same time, like the, the, the Christian message or the religious message along at the same time. That's kind of my my thinking behind it, but I still think it's really interesting, and I, and I, and I do find them really interesting um, in terms of like historically speaking. You know, it's easy to look at medieval history and forget that people had always just been just people, right? And and we, it seems no matter how much time passes, we're still interested in the same forms of entertainment. You know, sitting around telling scary stories. Um, it's easy to forget that, I think, because especially with medieval history being so different often from from our, our situation today, it's quite hard to relate sometimes. And yet here they are telling ghost stories, which, you know, is is not so much different from creepy pastor on Reddit, you know. So anyway, that's that's the Byland ghost stories. Um I hope you enjoyed it. Say so it was a little different this week. But yeah, I, I hope I hope you enjoyed the stories. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so. Um, contact at darkhistories.com is the email. You can also just uh, check out all the links in the show notes or go to darkhistories.com, which has all the links to all the ways you can follow the podcast, um, social media, and, and also get in touch with me through social media or, like I say, the email, um, contact at darkhistories.com. So yeah, thanks very much for, for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care and sleep tight.